Hello, I'm Chris Nicklin, welcoming you to People of Note. Our guest this week is one of South Africa's most acclaimed novelists and playwrights, Zaksim Dar, the son of Peter M. Dar, one of Nelson Mandela's most important early political contemporaries. Zakes showed a precocious talent, first getting into print when he was only 15. Despite a prolific writing career with his latest book, The Zulus of New York, just out, and living between the United States and South Africa, Zake still finds the time to pour his passion and energy into pet projects like a women's beekeeping collective in the Eastern Cape. Zake Sumdar, it's very good to have you with us on People of Notes. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I must say, if I was in a bookstore right now, uh-huh. I'd be tempted to buy the Zulus of New York as much for the cover For art. the cover. <laughs> it, it, it is a wonderful cover, yes. How would you describe it to, to somebody who hasn't seen it? Well, I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very bright, of course, very attractive. Very vivid, yes. And um, the artist has managed to capture, you know, some of my characters there, but in a very stylized manner. Mm. And actually some of the events, you know, you see, you know, those cards uh, uh, down there. Yes, playing cards. Just playing cards. They actually do feature in the story. Uh, so the artist, I mean, is very good. Essentially captured the, the essence of the story, would you say? Exactly. As the title of the book suggests, it's about a group of Zulu people who make their way to New York in the late 1800s at a time when one would have imagined the Big Apple was simply a voyage too far. So so what impelled them to undertake such an arduous trip? Well, in fact, in the story, I trace the story of one particular Zulu mm-hmm. from Ondini during the days of, of King Kajwayo who has to run away from Guazulu because of his own, you know, issues there with women and so on, <laughs> and finds himself in Cape Town. And then after some time, he's recruited by an impresario called uh, the Great Farini. Did he really come to Cape Town? For he was the guy who yes. uh, defied death by walking on a tightrope over oh, yeah, the Niagara he, Falls. Yes. It? He would do all those tricks, and he... He was he was a great performer himself. He was part of what was known as the the flying farinis, mm-hmm. you know. So why did he want uh, to recruit Zulus to New York? He had, you know, during those days, there were you know these human curiosity circuses in Europe mm-hmm. and in the United States, where then you know people would come and see other people from you know, exotic places and all that. Mm. Also, people who had deformities, who had, uh, you know, for instance, Siamese twins, mm. for instance, the Sarah Bartman kind of situation. So Farini would actually did come to Cape Town uh, and just moved into the Kalahari to look for the the so-called Bushmen people, as they were called then. To take back to New York, to yeah. put them in these... Exploitative to human take them zoos. back to New York, and the the, the so-called Hottentots, as they were called then, to take back for some of those displays. 
And then it so happened that at that time, King Kachwayo of the Zulu people had just defeated the British in the Battle of Isandwan. And then as a result of that, the Zulus became very, very famous. Mm-hmm. They became celebrities in England and in America because here were these savages, you know, who had defeated the greatest army in the world. And everybody wanted to see these ferocious Zulus. So nosy New Yorkers who, who wanted to gawk at these fierce-looking warriors from the so-called Dark Continent. Was yes. That, that so then Farini then would come down here and recruit, you know, a few black people. Some of them, of course, would be Zulus. Others would be anyone else he would find. And then they would sail to England where then they had to perform they are savage dancers. I, I think anybody yeah. who saw the recent film, The Greatest Showman, starring Hugh Jackman, about the famous New York circus owner, P.T. Barnum, will right. have a good idea of what we're talking about. In fact, these Zulus of mine, mm. who are Farini Zulus, as, as they were known, who did work for P.T. Barnum as well. He would rent them out to, to P.T. Barnum, and they would tour with his circus. So why did you want to tell the story, Zakes? Because it's an interesting story to tell, you see. That is all it takes to tell a story for me. Sure. And, and I how must find it interesting. It, it must fascinate me. And then, you know, and of course the fact that, you know, it is historical, you know, and it is the part of history that not many people know mm. about. I suppose for any writer it must be extremely gratifying to be able to tell an unknown story or relatively unknown story. Is this how you feel about the Zulus of New York? Well, not so much unknown story because you can take any story however known it is. Mm. For instance, in one of my novels, I write about Nong House and cattle killing. That's a very known story. Sure. But it just depends what fascinates you in that particular story and what angle you want to take because mm. there's always something new to say. So about, what fascinated you about yeah, the story? There, there's always something new about anything. Well, in this one, of course, is not that much known, but I would still have told it, even if it was well known. Why? Because it is now my story. I mean, I create my own fiction around that history, and that fiction can only come from me, you see. Zakes, time to hear your first musical choice. What is it, please? Well, my choice, my first choice would, would be uh, Ave Maria by Dame Kiri Te Kanawa. I choose this particular one because I've always loved Dame Kiri Te Kanawa, you know, over the years. Her, her beautiful soprano. And as a, a great lover and follower of opera, you know, she has always been my very top one. Of course, now, I mean, there are other, even South Africans, such as uh, Pumeza, Machikiza, and so on, mm-hmm. who I would also have, have selected, you know, if mm-hmm. we, we had the whole day. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yeah. Let's take a listen to it then.
That was Dame Kerry Takanawa, the famous New Zealand soprano with Ave Maria, the choice of this week's guest on People of Note, the celebrated South African novelist and playwright, Zeke Simdar. Zeke, as I mentioned in the introduction, Nelson Mandela and your father were political collaborators, together setting up the ANC Youth League, among other things. What sort of impact did this level or, or intensity of political involvement have on you as a presumably impressionable youngster? Well, I mean, at the time, I didn't know that there was anything important about them, you know. <laughs> yes. They were just guys who were around, you know, with my father. Because my father was the president of the ANC Youth League, mm-hmm. you know, the, one of the founders, and the second president after the death of Lembede, who was the first president. Anton Lembede, yeah. Yeah, so other people, people like Mandela, Tambos, he sort of served under him in his, in his executive. And therefore, there would be, I mean, at home quite a lot. So there are people I got to know very well, even when I, from the time I was, I was a child. Mm. But besides that, you know, when my father was arrested at some stage or was somewhere in the Eastern Cape mm. serving articles, trying to be a lawyer, then I would live at Nelson Mandela's house. Mm-hmm. When, when the one was, in Orlando? In Orlando, yeah. when he was still married to, to Evelyn. Uh, his first uh, wife. His first wife. So, so, this so was... I practically grew up with some of his children. Okay, so the, yeah. this was in Soweto in, in, in what, the 1940s, 1950s? Uh, early 50s, okay. yeah. To where your family had moved from the Eastern Cape? To where my family had moved to the Eastern Cape, which is where my father originally came from, mm. you know, before he went to Johannesburg. I see. I assume that because of your father, you were able to really observe Nelson Mandela at close quarters. As you say, you lived in his house. Yes. At a time he was starting to make his mark. Yes. And I do not know him politically, though. Yeah. I just knew him as a father who was around, very strict, you know, very full of it sometimes. Mm. But also, of course, sometimes we would go to some of these meetings, you know, as observers and and all that. And he he was a very rowdy fellow. (laughs) You know, they would heckle the speakers, especially there used to be Eben councils those days, you know, yeah. black people who were regarded as puppets because they were serving the urban councils that were established by, by, by the apartheid government. Mm. And uh, these guys who were, were young guys then, you know, sure. guys in their early 30s or even late 20s would go there to, to break up these meetings, to heckle the speakers. And this was Nelson Mandela yes. a- and your father, I suppose. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Well, my father was much more disciplined, actually. <laughs> yeah, you know, and they all say so, too, you know, that uh, although, of course, I mean, he, he was also very short-tempered and t- t- did not mm. suffer fools gladly, mm. you know. So you you describe Nelson Mandela at that stage as a, as a bit of a rabble-rouser there? Oh, yes. He certainly was. I read somewhere that you were never really in awe with him and that you're a bit amused by his deification. That would be near heresy in some quarters today. Well, I don't think so. You know, in, in many quarters today, people think that Nelson Mandela was a sellout. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have heard that story. No, absolutely. Yes, yeah. so, I, I mean, you know, he was... I, I was against his deification when they made him president, mm-hmm. you, you see. What problem did you have with that, Zex? Because he's, he's not a god. Mm-hmm. Deification made, you take somebody, you make him a god, and he becomes 
flawless and faultless and you know and therefore he can do anything he wants to do that's the main mistake that we did in Africa why we had all the dictatorships through, throughout Africa yeah. but Nelson Mandela People, Nelson Mandela did repeatedly say he wasn't a saint you know don't anybody can say that you see but when you give somebody more power and you make him a god there then obviously there's that danger you you know he was never a god i mean even if he said so he was telling the truth if he said so but people were trying to make him into that and the main problem with that of course is that that's how all dictatorship started these people were honored because okay they fought for our freedom and so on and therefore they can do no wrong and then they became big headed and they became dictators and they were untouchable after mm-hmm. that you, you see that and then all those countries went down the the, the dumps you, you see that yes the, the fortunate thing here by the way why we did not go that route is precisely the reason that we did not defy those political leaders mm. we would elect them today and put them in power tomorrow if they did something we don't like we go out to the streets to demonstrate against that you would never have done that in any part of africa where the leaders had been deified mm-hmm. so i wanted to stop the deification even before it, it could start with, with, with nelson mandela mm-hmm. you see before we could take that route you see and fortunately we never took that route even there of course thanks to our history mm. even though you you, you feel we might have been going that route with the deification of mandela well he was being deified yeah. actually, actually other sectors of the community here were deifying him they continue to do so mm. the international community was deifying him mm. to the extent that there are many things that he neglected here whilst he focused to things out there where he was being a superstar and so on he neglected many 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 things here you see and he, he focused on what he called reconciliation when you see which was a very one-sided kind of reconciliation but crucial surely crucial but other other reconciliation was crucial too you you can't just do one well i mean one sided and this is crucial you, you feel his his focus was too narrow as president exactly what about reconciliation amongst the black people themselves mm-hmm. you see he himself had grudges against other black people who had opposed him in the past decades ago when in fact he was reconciling with other south africans who who had actually jailed him there he can reconcile with them but he must reconcile with everyone else mm. you see sex just going back a bit again at some point your father abandoned the anc because he believed yes. mandela and others were watering down the ANC's central ideology on African nationalism yes. and joined the PAC. This must have been a significant political defection at the time. Exactly. Although my father never joined the, the PAC. He was never a okay. member of the PAC. A sympathizer there? No. Not even that? Yeah, no, no. Let me explain what he was. He believed completely in the cause of those PAC people. But he did not want them to break away from the ANC. He wanted them to change the ANC from within so that they continue on what they call the Africanist path, mm. which was their original path when they started the Youth League, you know, the path of African nationalism. So he believed very strongly that these young people could still change, 
But the other people, you know, the Sobukwes, insisted that they should break away. So he failed then to stop them from breaking away. He became known as the founding spirit of that breakaway movement. Not a member, founding spirit. Why? Because it was based on his philosophy of African nationalism. He never served in the executive or the PAC or any, or in any position at all because he never joined PAC. Like so many black people who were politically active at the time, your father was eventually forced into exile in Lesotho. Yes. Uh, where so many other anti-apartheid activists fled. You followed him there when you were still very young. This must have meant terrible upheaval for the Mdar family. Well, the first one to go was my father. Mm. And a year later, I followed him. And so we lived in exile, just with me and my father, you know, for, for quite a few years before my mother and my other siblings joined us. Well, in the beginning, of course, it was harrowing, you know, but not so much for us kids. You know, when you are kids, and fortunately you are with your parents, mm. because unlike many South African kids, even of my age then, who were exiled on their own and had to fend for themselves in exile. Mm. I was in exile with my parents. Mm. Oh, so your mother, Rose, made it into exile? Finally, well, after a couple of years. So we, we, we all lived in exile as a family. I know you feel very strongly about the need to accurately reflect the historical role of men and women in any society. How do you remember your mother's contribution to the struggle? Well, my mother's contribution was a very quiet one, just like my father's in later years, because my father preferred to be what he called, he called himself a bedroom boy, the thinker behind the scene, you know, the philosopher, mm. you know. My mother also had that role. In many cases when we were in the Soto, a lot of the guerrilla fighters, of course, would be hidden at home there. Mm. People like Savelo Palmer, you know, who was an Apla guerrilla leader. Actually, when he was killed, he, he, was from, he was from my home, you know. But people like Chris Hani also, you know, because you find that both ANC and PAC, when we were in exile, we, we didn't have the, the kind of divisions that you find when, when we were back in South Africa. You know, so all those people, we, we worked very closely together. Mm -hmm. Zakes, one rather astonishing account I read about your time in exile described how you joined Porco and was ordered by the then PAC leader, Putlako Labella, to kidnap white babies from farms in the Orange yes. Free State. But you refused and, mm -hmm. and the entire plot was abandoned. What was that all about? Well, it was not abandoned because of me, because they would still have done it without me. And it was the PAC military wing. Yeah. You see, because Porco, as it was called. Yes, that, that was part of the command, the, the, the leader, you know, Puputago Lebalo's plan was to, because, you see, we headquartered, our guerrilla camps were in Lesotho, mm. to, to cross, you know, to the free state and steal, you know, some children to, to kidnap them, mm. you know, Afghan children to kidnap them and, and hide them in the mountains of Lesotho. Mm. And you took and, a principled and, stand against this and, director. Um, and used them as, as hostages, you see. Yes, of course. I mean, I won't take children. No, no, no. You see, that, that would be, you know. So I had to defy my, my commanders. Actually, that was my very last time then uh, that I was in that army because I went AWOL, you know. So you were literally given your marching orders, were you? 
Well, I gave myself my, my <laughs> marching orders and I, I had to hide for some time. But fortunately, since well, my father was quite influential, you know, in, in that movement, I was let go, you know, that, okay, mm-hmm. maybe then you should just go to, go to school or, mm-hmm. or, 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 or something like that. You, you are a writer, you know, you're a painter. An artist, that, that, that's what. That's an extraordinary you, story, Zayn. You are, you are not, you're yeah. not cut out yeah. for, for war, you see. You, you are too weak, which was just good, which was just fine with me. Zakes, it's time for another musical break. What's the second track you've chosen? There's, there's a great, great jazz singer in, in Cape Town here, yeah, actually. I call her a jazz singer, but she's quite eclectic you know because you know she she does house she does you know all all, all types of, of of music her name is Oriole Hayes mm-hmm. yeah i would choose something by her well we've got something called over my shoulder ah that's that's very good i like that one too Looking over 
the hugely talented Cape Town songstress Oriel Hayes with Over My Shoulder, a favourite of our People of Note guest this week, the eminent novelist and playwright Zakesim Dar. His latest novel, The Zulus of New York, has just hit the bookshops, as they say. Mm-hmm. Zakes, like MP, one of the central characters in The Zulus of New York, you moved to the United States in the early 1980s. Was the purpose to put as much distance between yourself and apartheid, or was it also an opportunity to give your writing career a boost by situating yourself in what must be one of the world's literary mainstreams? No, no, no. We had no choices those days. When I went to America, I was not going there directly from South Africa. I was already in exile, you know, with, 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 with my family. We were already living in Lesotho. And then I first went to Europe because there happened to be an opportunity to go and study painting there, where I couldn't study it anywhere, you know. And then from there, of course, the next thing, there was an opportunity to go to America. If it was an opportunity to go to Russia, I would have gone to Russia, mm-hmm. or to China, or to Australia. It was just, it so happened that there was this particular opportunity that took me to America, which is where then I went to study for my master's degree mm. in theater at first, and so on. Mm. So, at, at that stage, though, you, you'd made a name for yourself as a, a playwright of political resistance, hadn't you? Yes. Actually, that's the reason I, I went to America, is because I was a playwright already, and I was going there and invited by this university, Ohio University, in Athens, which is where I still live, actually, mm-hmm. up, up to now, to go and study for a master's degree in playwriting. So, Zakes, how do you reflect on all the years you've lived in the U.S.? Obviously, it's, it's influenced you as a writer. Well, yes, for the better, of course, because every ex- experience you go through enriches you, even sure. the worst of experiences, mm. you see. I mean, contributes something into building you, I mean, for better or for worse. But anyway... I think all that experience enriched me. But also it made me a better South African writer. Why? Because I could, from that distance of America, look back at South Africa, you know, and then, you know, with a fresh eye as a stranger would. That's what they call defamiliarization. Mm-hmm. When you take the familiar and, and, and make it strange, make it new. I would be able to do that now with that distance. And therefore, when you are able to do that, your, your writing becomes much, much better. Mm. That's interesting because your numerous award-winning novels were set exclusively in South Africa, but in recent works such as The Zulus of New York, the locus shifts between Africa and America, was that inevitable? No, no, it's a choice that I make from time to time. Mm. For instance, my last novel before The Zulus of New York was completely set in South Africa. But the one before that was completely set in America. And this one is, is both South Africa and America. It's not only America. Because some chapters happen here. They happen in Cape Town. They happen in KwaZulu, you know, in Ondini, mm. and, 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 and so on. So, I mean, I don't have to be at a place to write about it. I can, I can be anywhere and, and, and write about anywhere else. Mm. Because, because I'm a writer. You, that's what you, we have, imagination. You published your autobiography in 2012, was it? In, in, uh. Entitled, Sometimes There is a Void, Memoirs of an Outsider. Yes. Is this how you've always viewed yourself as an outsider? Yeah, everywhere. I'm an outsider here. I'm an outsider in America. I'm an outsider in my own house, in my own, you know. 
Do you prefer to be an outsider? Well, that's just how I am. You know, I'm not a joiner of things. You know, or of uh, you know, I'm an independent thinker who who stands and looks at things and make up my mind about them. And sometimes that's not where groupthink is. You see, and in most cases it may not be there. You see. Yeah. Mm. Do you think being an outsider has helped you become a consummate storyteller? Because in a way, outsiders yes. are continually seeing things afresh, whereas exactly. people on the inside can become quite oblivious to what's around them, jaded, if you like. Exactly. It goes back again to what I call defamiliarization. No, you mentioned that. You see, as an outsider, you are able to, de- to defamiliarize is when you take the, the strange and, and, and make it familiar. Or... Take the familiar and make it strange. If you are able to shuttle between those two worlds, you see, then you have mastered the art of defamiliarization. And you are able to do that even most effectively if you can look at, at the inside as an outsider and reimagine it. Because that's all we do as creative writers. We reimagine, you know. Mm-hmm. Hmm. A review of your memoir in the New York Times said, and I quote, Zaksim Dyer learned to convert the absence of a bedrock sense of social normalcy into a talent for living on the qui vive, which I discovered means always being on the alert, on the lookout. Uh-huh. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, I mean, n- normally I don't uh, care to comment on what critics and reviewers say, mm-hmm. you know, they, they just must do their job. I would think this was quite a complimentary remark. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, whether it's complimentary or not, that's his opinion or her her, her opinion, you know. Uh, I don't have to agree with it or not agree with it, you see. Mm -hmm. It is correct in as far as they are concerned or he is concerned, you know, uh, you you see that. Uh, I, I cannot go and fight him for it or go and praise him for it. Sure. Yeah. But would you describe that as, a, as an accurate description of yourself? Somebody who's always on the lookout, always alert. I do not know because I'm not consciously on the lookout. But things strike me. I'm very sensitive to things, you know. Mm. Maybe that's being on the lookout without even trying to be on, on, on the lookout. Mm-hmm. Mm. Sakes, let's hear your third track of the program, please. This one is jazz, pure jazz. Sylvia Mdunero, also from Cape Town. I'm trying to introduce you fellows to Cape Town. We actually know musicians. Sylvia. Oh, we you know do? Sylvia here at FMR. Oh, that, that's great then. Oh, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. You see, so Sylvia Mdunero, um, Bube, yeah.
That was Cape Town jazz singer Sylvia Mdunyalwa, well known to us here at FMR with Mbube, the choice of our people of note guest, the novelist playwright Zeke Simdar. Zeke, something I, w- I was amused to read about oh. about you is, a, is an apparent compulsion to pick up hitchhikers whenever you're out driving. Apparently, you admitted as much in your memoir. Yes. Why do you do that? I no longer why, do it. Why, why do you give yeah. random strangers a ride so readily? Well, initially, to help, mm-hmm. you know. I've picked up somebody, you know, on my way, you know, from John, somewhere between Johannesburg and Bloemfontein, and discovered that he was from prison. He had just been released. And, uh, and then from there, of course, he begins to tell me about his life, you know, uh, how just a small little fight somewhere in Kronstadt, where he came from, led him, you know, to stab his friend to, to death, and he was arrested and uh, taken to a prison in Johannesburg. And it was his very, very first time to live with black people. This was mm. an Afrikaner guy, you know. And then telling me his experience there. And his story, you know, was very fascinating because from strangers, you, you, you get to hear very interesting stories. And then when I dropped him where he was going, you know, just past uh, Bluefontein, and I found that he, di- he didn't have any money or anything like that, I, I gave him about 200 rands, and he was so funny. Then he told me, you know, this is the most money I've ever had in my life. I mean, that bulk, you know. And just that alone, you know, made, made me feel, uh, because I, I think I do it for selfish reasons. Mm. I was going to say. It, 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 it made me feel so good. You know, that number one, he didn't even know who I was. There's just this stranger who picked him up and gave him a start somewhere. That I've done something good for somebody else. Mm. I do not know and who does not know me and will never meet anywhere again. So is your propensity to pick up hitchhikers motivated by wanting to be helpful? Yes. Or... A writer's endless quest for a new story, the hope that your passenger might tell you something it is, that you could turn into a play or book. No, no, no. <laughs> that, that comes sometimes or not. Sometimes you pick up a stinky fellow who will just be sitting there and you don't even want him to open his mouth. <laughs> you see that? Then you can, you can drop them there and you are just happy that you have, you have assisted. But has a, has a conversation in your car ever led to a play or book? No, it has never. And in fact, I don't, sometimes I don't even want that conversation. You know, but some people, people like to talk too much. <laughs> and also, I actually, and I learned here in South Africa, it can be a very dangerous thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so my wife, you know, warned me very strongly. That, and then I, I stopped doing that. Okay. Even when I was doing it, I was doing it when she, she was not there. <laughs> you know, when, when I drive alone. Yeah. As a writer, You've often voiced your disapproval of the current state of South African politics through newspaper opinion pieces or on Twitter. Yes. What are the hot-button issues that typically spur you into action as a writer? No, no, I mean, just silly things. Like? Very mundane things, you know. It is really from, from the mundane that some of the most important, you know, topics. But you do will, rail against will, will you do rail against patronage politics and cronyism from time to time. Oh yes, 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 yes. You you know. I do rail against the ANC a lot. And by the way, I'm a big supporter of the ANC. 
although I won't vote for them this time. From, right from the beginning, I've always been an ANC voter, you see, because I believe very strongly in their, in their basic philosophy, you know, which they, they have abandoned as we went along. To what extent do you think that writers, or to use the current jargon, social influences such as yourself, have a responsibility to deviate from the creative side of their work and use the power of the pen to reprimand wayward politicians and their ilk? It depends, because they are writers and they are writers. They are writers who are socially inclined. They are writers who create art for its own sake. And all those are necessary in society. Would you say you're a socially inclined writer? Well, obviously, you have just said so yourself. <laughs> you know. Uh, I want to hear it out of the horse's mouth. <laughs> throughout this interview, you are emphasizing on how socially inclined I am. Hey, do, <laughs> do, 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 do you see that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> but then, uh, I believe that, you know, the, the writer you are, I mean depends on the person you are. If you are a, a socially inclined person, then you, you'll be a socially inclined writer because the writing comes from you. But if you are not, you won't force yourself to be. You write what you want to write, what you feel comfortable with writing. And all those kinds of writing are all necessary. They are all good. They must all be shared in the world, whether they are political or they, they are not. Soon after the elections in 1994 that ended apartheid, you wrote a satirical play called You Fool, How Can the Sky Fall? Yeah. About how the leaders of a fairly new democracy hopelessly mess up. Looking at where South Africa is now politically, some might suggest that this was remarkably prophetic work. But surely you couldn't have anticipated the egregiousness of the Zuma regime at the time. Well, you, you see... I think you, you, you need even to read the work I wrote even before apartheid came to an end. Why a play like We Shall Sing for the Fatherland is so popular that every year is being performed somewhere is precisely because they say it is prophetic. They say it is about today. And yet I wrote it 20 years before 1994, 20 years before we got our freedom. So my work is, you know, as you people say, prophetic, you know. But when I write, I don't try to be prophetic. I'm a storyteller. I tell a story. It just so happens there's a play for that John Carney directed recently at the Market Theatre called The Dying Screams of the Moon. I wrote it before 1994, before, it was, you know, towards the end of, of the apartheid era when I wrote that play. And many people who saw the play thought that it is about today. It deals with today's issues. It is about the issues of land. The people that people are talking about now, uh, land and so land on, expropriation, expropriation yeah. they are all there in that mm. play. So it's all about recurring issues then? Well, you see, I do not know. I just tell the story as I see it. Sometimes then as we, in Little Sons, which is set in 1880, you know, which is my novel, Lawyers were reading it, saying it is about the, the conflicts, you know, today in kingship and so on, and all that in the Eastern Cape and KwaZulu-Natal. But going back to the satirical play, You Fool, How Can the Sky Fall, which yes. you, you wrote in 1995, yes. 
What prompted you to write something like this when the country was still basking in the dawn of emancipation? And that's precisely why that play, or at least that one was performed, The Dying Screams of the Moon was, was not performed because there was euphoria in the country. You see, everybody was euphoric. And then they said I was pissing on uh, this euphoria. Uh, so censorship raised its head, did it? Yeah, well, internal censorship yeah. by our producers and so on. I can name them. Uh, theatre producers, no, no, we, we can't do no, this play. No, you don't play. need to name them. We, we, we can't do this play because, you know, it's, it's raining on our parade now because we, we are all happy now. Uh, all of a sudden you are coming with this. Mm-hmm. And then after 20 years now, they are, they are doing it. Mm. You see? Yeah, I believe you fool. How can the sky fall has just recently been reprised. Yes. Mm. That was for the second time. But its initial performance was at the Winterbrow in Johannesburg. And why at that little theatre there is because the mainstream theatres did not want it. So, in a way, a play way before its time. Exactly. And that's the, that's the case with my work. And don't ask me how, because I don't know. I just tell the story. Zakes, let's hear your fourth and final track, please. What have you chosen? Oh, now that one is my very, very favorite John Coltrane, A Love Supreme. I'm glad we're able to include it.
The American jazz saxophonist and composer John Coltrane with A Love Supreme, chosen by our People of Note guest, the celebrated South African playwright and novelist Zakes Dar. Zakes, away from all the writing, you oversee a quite fascinating beekeeping project that helps sustain rural women in the mountainous border region of the Eastern Cape. Was this your idea? Well, you thought we were running away from writing. No, we were not. <laughs> oh dear. It, it, it actually comes from writing that beekeeping project. You see, I was once commissioned by a Dutch theatre company called the Nieuwe Amsterdam uh, Theatre Group mm-hmm. to write a play for them set in South Africa and in Holland. So I thought of writing a play about, you know, based on a woman I, I knew who used to be a refugee in, in Amsterdam. But I was told, well, now she lives in the Eastern Cape. So I went there in search of this woman. Unfortunately, I didn't find her, but I discovered a beautiful pink mountain in an area that I should have known very well because it was my ancestral village. That's where my grandfather used to be a chief, uh, you know. This is the Teller River. Around there, the Teller River. Around the Teller River, there's a mountain there called Yahom. You see, the pink mountain was pink because it was spring and the aloes were in bloom. But then when I looked at the villages around there, I saw nothing but poverty. Why? Because many men had been retrenched from the mines, because that's where they get their life, the mines of Velkom, the mines of Johannesburg, you know. And then there was... So I thought to myself, those flowers cannot be beautiful for nothing. And then I said to myself, because, well, I didn't even know that what you can do with them, but, I mean, they are just sitting there and they are beautiful. What for? They must do something for these people. So as I was driving back, then I thought, flowers, flowers, there were bees. You know, but I knew nothing about mm. beekeeping. So when I got to Johannesburg, then I bought the Farmers Weekly, looking around to see where I'm going to find a beekeeper who can train me. Fortunately, I discovered a guy called Velem Dankelman, <laughs> who was a beekeeper in that Johannesburg area there, you know, and was also, you know, holding training for people. So that's when then I applied there to Velem, and then we worked together. He, he taught me a, a, a lot about beekeeping. So you took the idea of setting up a beekeeping project back to the Eastern Cape? Yes. I, I took it back to then, where the chief called a meeting. I talked yeah. with the people. And then some people were interested. Then I got funding from Kellogg Foundation, right. from Eskom Foundation yeah. those days. Thanks as, as a beekeeper myself, mm. I, I must declare particular enthusiasm in this project. Yes. But, so are you a, a practicing beekeeper yourself? I am. Well, now it's pseudo because pseudo practicing because I don't go there as often as I used to when the project was still new, you know. But now the women have taken it over, and they are running it, you know. 
and I go there once in a while to see how things are going. Mm. And my mouth is is positively watering. Yes. thinking about the honey they produce. I guess it's it, it's aloe honey, it's which aloe is honey. that lovely yes. pale white uh, honey. A- exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and Zakes, why women specifically? I didn't choose women specifically. I choose I chose everybody. And in the beginning, there were many men as well. You see, there we were forty in number, and almost half were men, or maybe even slightly more than half. But then men began to fall off, or, you know, bit by bit, one by one. Well, beekeeping is hard work, I must tell you. Until I was left with women only. Especially in the beginning when things were difficult and also, you know, we were not getting funding uh, quick enough and so on and all that. You, you see, mm. many men became impatient and others wanted instant profits, you know from the very funds then they must be paid mm. you know and all that i i didn't want them to and anything except if it came from the harvest of 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 their honey mm. and zakes the important question do the bees sustain these women and by extension their families the bees sustained these women and their families but unfortunately when then there was an outbreak of varroa at some stage... Mm, which is a, a terrible uh, bee pest. Yeah, they, they lost... Because there was a time when they had a thousand or slightly more than a thousand... Beehives. Uh, beehives. They lost quite a lot. And also, political things came into play. You know, other people would go there and, 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 and damage the hives mm. and so on. Or, or, because this is on, on a mountain. It's spread all over the mountain, these hives. You know, all over mm. li- li- like that. Mm. So, you, you know. Wonderful imagery. Yeah. So, you, you, you see, and of course, being powerless themselves, since they didn't do this thing through the local political structures, the ANC, for instance, there. You know, then the, 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 the ANC, those ANC people would come and, and destroy this project. Mm. Because it, it didn't go there in their name, you see. Mm-hmm. But they're still continuing with the They're still the continuing, yes. I'm sensing that this could be a book about the women beekeepers of the Eastern Cape. Oh, yes. And Zakes, how long are you going to continue writing? Presumably, you, you never have to retire from writing. It's yeah, you well, have the, the motivation. Yeah, well, fortunately, you don't retire from writing. I'll continue. I mean, I, I still, but now I'm, I'm focusing on children's stories now. I, maybe this is my last adult novel, who knows? Unless I'm attacked by a story, because sometimes we never know. A story attacks you and demands that <laughs> you write it. Uh, you, you, you see. But if I have my own, you know, way, this might be my, my very last adult novel, because I, I'm focusing on writing for children, but also producing animation films. Zaksimda, it's been great chatting to you. Thank you for joining us on People of Note. It's my pleasure. F-M-R.